It's Proverbs chapter 6, and you can pray for him that he would uh, get that down, get it down, and, and learn, and uh, become effective, because that's something that the Lord can use. I know that's how, how I got started. Actually, it was more teen group, though. The Lord threw me into uh, that and leading the music, because I had a sister who taught me how to, how to do the pattern, and so... Um, uh, and it was, it's a learning experience, but it's a very valuable because it can be used for the Lord's service for years to come. So, all right. Oh, that, I don't know why I was preaching that message, except just to encourage you to encourage him. All right. If there's anything on that, and I know you will. Uh, we are looking at the last part of Proverbs chapter six, the sixth point. We skipped the fifth one. And you, and I said last Wednesday that I was probably going to preach it Sunday. Yeah, I didn't preach it Sunday, all right? Lord, Lord just led a different direction, uh, and it wasn't because I wasn't willing. It just seemed like the Lord led a different direction, and, um, and I, I really felt like James 1 was vitally important to not only the week of meetings, but just... Uh, to our lives. This is challenging to me, and it's been a great reminder personally um, as I've come to my own daily devotional time, uh, how important it is not just to be a, 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 a hearer, but a doer of the Word. And, um, and so, uh, we will get to part, part five, the fifth, the fifth point, or Roman numeral one in your, your outline, okay? But not tonight. Tonight, we're going to continue on. We're going to finish uh, this last point, and uh, look at this matter of uh, what God says about adultery and uh, what God teaches us in this matter of moral purity. And uh, we began to look at uh, a number of things. The abomination of adultery is what we called it, Roman numeral two in the outline, as again, we skipped the first, all right? And we uh, share with you from these verses, first of all, the pleasure or the possibility, however you want to put it, but uh, even though the Bible doesn't tell us in verses 24 and 25 that, that adultery is pleasurable, the very fact that God deals with it so many different times in Scripture and took time in the Ten Commandments, in, in the commandment number seven to say, thou shalt not commit adultery, that we know that this is obviously something that is desirable or something that people would have a heart for, that they have to stop and that they have to say no to and they have to reject. So we did learn, and verses 24 and 25 suggest that because he says in verse 24 that the word of God, verses previous to it, will keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. So we understand the possibility or the pleasure we saw the person, the strange woman that is introduced in these verses, and we learned a number of things about her. So help me out with it, because you already have it in your outline. You should. What are some of the words we use to describe her that describe the, the way she is pictured in these verses? All right, one of the things we learn about her is she's perverse. A lot of different words describe that. She's evil. She is whorish. Uh, she isn't adulterous, and uh, she's just, she's bad, she's evil, and, uh, and anyone that would seek to lead someone astray, to pull someone into a relationship with her, 
uh, is, is certainly a wicked person. Now, in our world today, that's not how people would describe them, uh, but that's how God described them. Uh, the word whorish means wanton or lewd or bawdy or sensual. Uh, and giving, given to indulgent flirtation. Those were all definitions given for that word. And picture a, a woman that you don't want anything to, to do with. Uh, and then we learn not only is she perverse, but she is provocative. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart. And uh, we uh, could suggest numerous ways. In fact, we'll talk about the practices in, in a few moments. Uh, there's another word we use to describe her. Yeah, a poacher. You say, what is uh, a poacher? Uh, someone who, well, a poacher, uh, you know, as far as we would understand, it, someone who kills or takes the life of an an animal illegally. Uh, but it does describe the actions of an adulteress because uh, she hunts down uh, the, the innocent man, she hunts someone and brings them to a piece of bread. But notice that last phrase, the adulteress will hunt for the precious life like a poacher would, going and taking it because I want it. And, uh, and I just, uh, either I want the money or I want whatever uh, they're seeking or the pleasure or the excitement or whatever it may be, her reasoning behind what she's doing. Uh, poaching means to trespass or to steal, and that is a good description. And then we, the last word, come on. This has got to be your favorite. You wrote it down. Did you spell it right? All right, perfidious. <laughs> and does anyone, did anyone write down what that means? Oh, she was going to answer it back here, all right? Not true to some... To, Oh, yes. What were you going to say? Oh, yeah. you, you looked it up and found a different definition. No, it's not true to one's allegiance to someone. And uh, a woman who's married, an adulteress, is, has made a covenant. Bef now, some say before God, but I actually believe the covenant is with God. That when I say I do, I'm not only promising that person that I am committed to them for life, but I'm promise, I am promising God. I'm making a covenant between God and I. This is who I'm committed to. And, uh, and so she's perfidious. She's not true to that allegiance any longer. And she follows her own wants and her own desires. Uh, and then we learn the practices. And uh, again, I, we, we got to move on. But a number of things we could describe, uh, uh, most of them found in verse 24, her words uh, the way she dresses, lust not after her beauty. Uh, her eyes, verse 25, the fluttering eyelashes of a woman. Uh, the touch, uh, verse 29, could suggest that. Uh, Whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. Now, the touch there was more the physical act, at least it seems to be, uh, from the passage. But we know in other places that uh, there is a, a physical touch that's involved and it's very dangerous, and you got to watch out for it. And we ended with the participant, okay? And I, maybe the way I presented it, it makes the man sound like the innocent one, but he's not innocent as far as God is concerned. So in verses 27 to 29, we learned what? First, first point. Okay, a man has no excuse. Now, I'm going to say it again. We focused on the woman, and we kind of made it seem like she is the problem, 
and she is the guilty one. Well, she is. God does talk about her being and uses very strong language about the evil of her way and what she's doing. So God holds her accountable, and we don't want to excuse that. But sometimes men excuse their wrongdoing by saying, well, you know, look at the way she was dressing. She was asking for it. You know, that's a term that's, that's used a lot. In fact, I, I've shared it before, but there was a court case, this is back a number of years ago now, where the man, a, a man had a physical relationship with a woman, and uh, she claimed that he had uh, taken advantage of her, and he argued in the court of law that the way she dressed asked for what he gave her. And he won. Uh, the way she was dressed and her actions, according to the judge, um, said she wanted what he gave to her. And, uh, and so she, there is a responsibility a woman has, but we can't use that as an excuse. And the truth of the matter is a man has to have the character to say no. In fact, look at what he says there in verse 25. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. So you have a choice to make. In fact, the second point under that is you must choose right. You have no excuse, but you must choose right. By the way, I said I wanted to go back. I'm saying by the way a lot, so I better stop that. Okay. I said in the last point I wanted to go back and just uh, share a couple other things. Verse 29 says that God will hold the man accountable. If you go into your, to your neighbor's wife, if you touch her, you won't be innocent. God's clear enough. But quite honestly, this whole passage is teaching the same thing. And let me just bring it out. There's uh, three other places where God indirectly says the same thing. Uh, verse 30 to 35 talk about the fact that there is a judgment that will come saying that a man is responsible for what he does and don't think you can escape because, well, the woman threw herself at me or the woman dressed that way or, or she was beautiful or she enticed me. No, you're responsible for your actions and you'll pay for it. That's the judgment of the man is, is found in those verses. The man has been given the tools to say no. Go back to verse 24. To keep thee from the evil woman. There's something that'll keep you and it's the word of God. You have a tool. So a man can't say, I can't help myself because he needs to say no because there's judgment that'll come for this wrong. He can say no because the word of God will help him. The third reason is that lust is a choice and you can give into it or you can refuse it. And that is what we just read in verse 25. Uh, don't let her take thee and don't lust after her beauty. This is your choice. And that's, that's the second point then. You must choose what is right. Um, a man is not a victim, um, and, and a, a man is not, uh, is not helpless. By the way, doesn't that teach us, doesn't that say that what they try to tell us about how they need to teach sex education in the public school system because kids are going to do it anyway. Doesn't this passage argue that fact? 
it says you can say no. It gives two different ways, the word of God to be a help and then your choice. I'm not going to lust after her beauty. I'm not going to let her entice me. I'm not going to let what she's doing influence me or affect me. So what the world says and what God says are absolutely contrary to one another. And we better come down on God's side with this. Young people can say no. They need to say no. They must say no. And this is not something you take lightly or you teach them how to, how to get involved without pregnancy. Uh, that is wicked and it's wrong. They need to, and, and men, we need to choose that which is right. Look, if you would, at verse 25, because he says, lust not after her beauty, where? So the third point is, you must protect the heart. So can someone tell me where God says a man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed? I figured someone would know it. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where verse 15 says, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So lust, let me, let me just, uh, a quick lesson on this, all right? Lust has to be kept from conceiving. Lust is strong desire, by the way. It's not just, lust is not dirty, filthy thoughts about physical relationship. Lust is just strong desire. When God talks about lust in James 1, he's not just talking about someone who gets involved in adultery or fornication. He's talking about any kind of strong desire that controls your life. And he says, don't let it conceive. Uh, there's a lot of things people lust after. People lust after food. And usually, you can tell. Uh, People lust after all sorts of things. Some people lust after, lust after sleep. And they lounge around. They're couch potatoes. They don't do anything. They're, they're, they, they're lazy. It's what they desire. Uh, some people uh, have strong desires in all sorts of areas. And God is dealing with the subject of moral purity in chapter 6 and what he tells us is that if we're going to win the battle, we have got to learn the battle to battle it in the mind and in the heart. Um, if, if you look back in Proverbs 4 and verse 23, what does God tell you? You know that verse. Some of you probably have it memorized. What does God tell you? Keep your heart with all diligence. Keep thy heart because out of it are the issues of life. A lot of ways people explain that verse, but uh, in, in simplest form, at least one of the understandings is that what flows forth from the life comes from what you're thinking on and dwelling on and what you've allowed to take root in your heart. And Jesus Christ said that himself. He told the, um, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and, and he warned his disciples about the heart and, uh, and how dangerous it is and how it will take you away if you allow it to, and you gotta, you got to protect that. Someone dealing with, with this passage 
made this statement. He said, lust, they said, lust is the fruit of an undisciplined imagination. So we men are without excuse. There's no one to blame but ourselves. Though lust is an ever-pressing temptation, it is not impossible to resist. It does, however, demand constant vigilance, sensitivity to conviction, and the practices of confession and repentance. And he's right. It's just, it's, 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 it may be a battle, but a, a man needs to protect, not from the outward action, he needs to protect the heart. And that's where the battle uh, often goes on. And some people excuse a filthy mind and heart by saying they haven't done things outwardly. And God says, you better be careful with the heart. Lust not after her beauty in your heart. Protect yourself. And by the way, this was written because it was his son, but this applies to women as well, that you need to protect your heart because your actions come forth from that. Look, if you would, or let's mention now the perils, verses 30 to 35. The perils. As our chapter comes toward the end, Solomon warns his son about immoral activity, and he focuses on the devastating effects or the perils of involvement in adulterous activity. So let's consider some of the things. Uh, men do not... By the way, I skipped some of it, didn't I? Uh, skipped some of the, one of these verses. Um, Oh, a man is brought to, um, can man take fire in his bosom? I skipped that, didn't I? I had that back in my outline, and I, and I missed it. Um, so, so let me go back there. Let me just take a minute here and uh, share with you two rhetorical questions. You know what a rhetorical question is? It's, um, it's a, a question that requires no reply either because the answer is obvious or because the asker already knows the answer. And Solomon takes a moment here before we go on to verse 30, and he talks about how a man is guilty in verse 29. And the two illustrations in verses 27 and 28, the two rhetorical questions emphasize, emphasize not only guilt, but the fact that there are consequences that come for doing wrong. That's the point. So this is, you know, like it's one of those, duh, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? So if someone took a flamethrower to Brother Slesser, just, you know, all right, besides the fact it's going to kill him, all right, but what's going to happen if, if flame is just shot at him? Yeah, okay, your clothes are going to catch on fire. It's just like, duh. This is really profound here, all right? You don't have, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. You don't have to have a college degree to figure this one out. There's going, there's going to be something that happens when some guy takes fire and just puts it against someone's chest and his clothes are going to burn. Wow, couldn't figure that one out. All right, then you look at the next one. He says, can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? And you say, I've seen someone do that. Okay, now you're taking it too far. Okay, the answer is, you should know this is rhetorical. If guy goes on coals 
His feet are going to be burned. I mean, it makes common sense. It just, it's going to happen. All right, so then, if you go into your neighbor's life, don't expect nothing to happen. Don't expect everything to be fine. Don't expect everyone to be accepting of that and think it's wonderful. And don't think there aren't going to be consequences. That seems to be the point. Now, there, now a couple different authors give a couple different ideas and their explanation of these things, but that really is the simplest idea. Look, look, you take fire and you put it in this, against someone's chest, their clothes are going to burn. A guy goes out, he takes his shoes and socks off and he walks across hot coals. He's going to burn his feet. Duh! So don't think you can get away with committing adultery and not have consequences. There's a payment that comes. And it's important for us to remember that. And that should be, if you would, a motivation to say, I'm not going to lust after her beauty. I'm not going that direction. Because I don't want to have to pay the price that will come for failure. Because it starts, it starts in the heart, in the mind. All right. Then the, now, now we're getting to the perils, okay? Look at some of the things that God says will, will happen. In verse 30, we have an interesting kind of illustration and application. Men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul first point, I I put it this way, darkening. Starting in verse 30, the father speaks of a thief who steals because he's hungry. Now, if some guy was starving, all right, if some guy broke into your house and he stole something, you'd be mighty upset about it, okay? But let me ask you a question, in, in all sincerity, I understand you want the guy to pay for it and everything else, but if the guy was starving and his family were, was starving, would there not be at least an, uh, something in your heart that might say, you know what, I just, I don't know if I'll even press charges. This guy didn't have anything for his family. His kids were going to bed hungry. And if you really knew that to be the case, wouldn't your heart at least go out to him and say, I can understand that. Yes, no, all right. Some of you are that way. Uh, no, he needs justice. That sounds like a fundamentalist, doesn't it? Okay. Uh, no, you would, you can understand that. You can have compassion on someone like that. Now, a judge in court, he's still going to make him pay because he did wrong. The man who was hungry, by the way, and who stole would probably admit what he did was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. I may excuse it by, by this, but I know it was wrong. I shouldn't have, shouldn't have done this, and so I deserve to be punished. And that's the illustration God uses uh, in, in, uh, to, to, um, uh, to share with us, to, to bring us to the point then where he says, but whoso committeth adultery with woman lacketh understanding. You see, we can understand if a man will steal when he's hungry to satisfy that. But it makes absolutely no sense for a man 
to steal when he's got everything. The man who commits adultery has food. He has a wife that can satisfy that hunger. That's the point here. I never thought about it that way. But that's a, so there's no excuse. You would, you would never in your mind sit there and say, well, I understand why he did that. You shouldn't because he has no right. He's got food on his table and he shouldn't steal it from someone else's table. That's how God illustrates this matter of adultery and how evil it is because he has everything he has everything he needs, but he's stealing from someone else. And it is so wrong, and it indicates that his, his heart has been darkened so that he doesn't have understanding. He, he's a, we'd probably describe him as a fool. Um, and so adulterer, an adulterer, um, actually every writer, when they describe this phrase, when he says that whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding, you know what they say about that? They say it means this, he lacks heart. He doesn't have a heart. His, his understanding, I, this is why I use the word dark, his understanding is darkened. So that in some ways he can't see what is so plain. He's, he has food, yet he's taking it from someone else. It's totally unreasonable, totally corrupt. And yet he has, he has a darkened heart that has so justified himself that sees nothing wrong with it. Um, the point is that this act committed begins to destroy and darken the heart of a man. It strips away the moral compass of a man. And if he will justify that, there's no telling what else he'll justify. One man running for office did that very thing. His wife right now is someone he stole from another man. Although he was portrayed to be very moral and upright. And that's not our sitting president either. Jill was another man's wife that Mr. Biden committed adultery with. And stole her away. And someone who does that ruins their moral compass. It shouldn't surprise you how dark a man's heart can get if he'll justify adultery. He lacks understanding. It just goes, it just darkens the heart. Uh, 
You know, that's why God tells us to protect so much against it. I can't help but imagine that's why he took three chapters in Proverbs to deal with this. Because God knows the serious ramifications of immoral activity. It leads to deception. It it darkens your heart so you don't have understanding and you can't even understand right and wrong in many other areas because you've justified something so wicked as you have plenty of food, but you go and steal food from someone else. Um, Darkness. Second thing, destruction. Look in verse 32 again. He that doeth it, what does God tell you at the end? Destroy your own soul. Someone put it this way, and I thought it was really, really, I I just like jumped out of me. It's called suicide of the soul. The point was made that the more someone sins in this matter of adultery, the more the soul dies, the conscience dies. In fact, they tied it to Titus chapter 1 and verse 15. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. So it doesn't just darken the mind the intellect and heart, rendering them unable to reason clearly and act wisely, but it just destroys the soul. It's a suicide of the soul. Um, There's no telling the direction his life will take if he justifies breaking his vows and taking what someone else is. You could justify just about anything if you can justify that. Destruction. Dishonor, verse 33. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. You know what's kind of scary today is that is that there's a lot of people who commit adultery and dishonor is not what they get. And it shows us the moral depravity that's going on in our country and the lack of sensitivity people have to truth. And it's not surprising because we're, we're, we're going down the sewer. But the fact of the matter is moral, decent people still think poorly of someone who will be so low as to commit adultery. And it also reminds us how our thinking is supposed to be. Dishonor. Danger, verses 34 and 35. Jealousy is the rage of a man. Verses 34 and 35, uh, for a man who's caught, uh, it was a dangerous time. You know why? Because it wasn't always a judge who made the decision. In that day, in the day when this was written, it was the man who was wronged who would take vengeance. And let me tell you something, a guy whose wife has been stolen doesn't take that too well. And so often, their life was in danger, and many times their life was taken by the one they had wronged. The wife of Uriah. And so, uh, there's danger that comes. And 
although that doesn't happen in our day and that doesn't take place necessarily, it would help us to understand. The truth is that when someone has done that, um, their life is in, in danger. And whether or not they pay for it by a man who takes vengeance on them, uh, they still face great danger. Uh, ruined relationships for life, hurt people, paying for it for the rest of their lives. Um, so don't miss the clear and powerful teaching here in this passage about the matter of moral purity. This is a need. It's so desperate a need. And it's something that uh, sadly is, is just, we kind of sweep it to the other side when God doesn't. He puts it prominently in this book in, in three different chapters. And the last point is the protection. And I know we're, we're, we're late, but let me just finish that point so I can come back to point number one. Um, but we're coming back to verse 24 at the close of this chapter uh, for a couple reasons. The first is a reminder that this book is a powerful tool. Because verse 24 says that it can keep you from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. That's how powerful this book is. If you look at chapter 7 and look at verses 1 through 5, you know you're going to find something? You're going to find not the exact same wording, but pretty much the same message you find in verses 20 through 24. And he is going to tell us again at the beginning of chapter 7 that the Bible will keep you from immorality if you use it. If you go back to chapter 5, it deals, the whole chapter deals with immorality. And look at verses 1 and 2 and tell me, what does he share in the first two verses of chapter 5? He tells us that God's word can keep us, at least help us, in this matter of immorality. It's not as clear in chapter 5, but think about it. In verses 2 of chapter 5, in verses 20 to 24 in chapter 6, in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 7, every time he deals with immorality, he starts by saying, listen to what God has to say. And he tells us, that this book is a powerful tool because it cuts a line and says right and wrong, good, bad, evil, wonderful. And if you'll just keep that before you and live and follow it, it's going to keep you from going down the wrong path. And may we learn the value, the great value, the protection of Scripture. Um, what a, what a powerful admonition. You need the Bible for moral purity in a morally perverse world. And I, and I got to tell you, the more we see things going on in our world, the more I'm reminded. I just, I got to keep saturating my mind on, on Scripture because it's, it's just, it's, it's bad. And we just need to be reminded all the time. This is what God says. This is how I need to think. 
world tells us this. The world tells us, you know, it's all right to do that. And God says, no. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for the help you give us. And thank you for giving us a book that is so powerful and helpful that it can protect us from such a strong temptation. And I pray that you'd help us to learn from it and to follow it and to please you, men and women, in this room. And I'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Lord bless you as you are pure and honor him. You're dismissed.